was just thinking um, this past week about the very first sermon that I ever preached. It was awful. It's okay, you can laugh. It, it was like more than 20 years ago, and I'm just starting to learn to laugh about it now. Um, I was about 21 years old, and, and I was trying to understand at that particular point what God's leading in my life was, and, and if he was moving me in the direction of ministry and how all of that needed to happen. And my senior pastor at the time was uh, mentoring me a little bit through that. He was coaching me about how to preach and, and what all of that meant. And then he was kind enough one Sunday night to give me an opportunity to preach in the Baptist church where I grew up. And so I studied hard for like weeks in advance, and, and then I wrote this really long sermon, and then that Sunday night came, and I showed up at church in my finest three-piece suit, because come on, it's a Baptist church, right? And so there I was, I was ready to go, and, and then minutes before the service started, I, I started thinking to myself, how, did I, how do I get out of this? Like, what can I do just to get out of this? Because I was terrified out of my mind. It was, it was terrible. And then it came time for me to preach. And, and I remember standing up on this stage in the worship center and almost being like swallowed up by this massive wooden pulpit that was at the front. And, and then I had my 13 pages of yellow lined paper front and back with notes on it, really small print, just packed in there, ready to go. And, and then I asked everyone to open their Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is an absolutely amazing passage all by itself. But back then, I was so naive, I was so young and dumb and thought I knew everything when in fact I knew nothing and still don't really know anything now. And, and I stood up that night, I'm not even sure I preached a biblical sermon that night. Like it was, it was awful in every possible way. But I was thinking about it this week and, and realizing, you know, it was kind of a strange experience because what I remember most about that was that I was at a time in my life where I really believed that God was moving me in a certain direction, that he was taking me in a certain way, and that I needed to go in that way. And yet, at the same time, I was absolutely terrified. Like, and I was terrified largely because I didn't really know how this was all going to go, and I didn't really know where all of this was going to end up. Open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and, and we're about to meet a man in Genesis 15. His name is Abraham, and Abraham is, finds himself at this particular point in his life kind of in a similar position to that. If you're new to Harvest or if you're joining us for the first time, maybe in a few weeks, we are in week number four of a year-long series called Looking to Jesus, and our plan, Lord willing, is to take all of 2018 to go from Genesis to Revelation, start of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and dive into the key passages and the key themes of God's Word, because when we do that, we find that all of those key passages and all of those key themes really are telling only one single story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's love that is shown to us perfectly through his only son, Jesus Christ. And so as you're turning to Genesis 15, why don't you also open up your Looking to Jesus worship guides. You can turn to page 23, and I think our ushers are ready. If you don't have a copy of uh, the worship guide with you, just slip up your hand, and someone would love to get a copy of that into your hands right now. It's all you need to do. Just slip up your hand, and they'll come to you. We'd love to get you a copy of that. In Genesis 15, we are introduced for the first time to one of the most significant people in all of the Bible. His name is Abraham. And the Bible introduces us to Abraham for the first time, actually back in Genesis 12. But in our series, this is the first time that we've come across Abraham. And at this particular point, his name is Abram. God's going to change his name a little while later. But here in this section of God's Word, we meet Abram with his wife, Sarai. And they're at a place right now where God is leading them very clearly. 
Like, there is no doubt about the direction that God is moving them in. But as God directs them, they have no idea how what God told them is ever going to happen for them. And the longer that this whole thing goes on, the more fear it creates in their hearts and, and the less that they actually know about what's happening and the more that they're called to trust in God. Now, just to give you an idea of how significant this passage is really to the larger storyline of the whole Bible, consider what pastor and author John Stott says about this section of God's word. He says this, It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. So I want you to see this morning as we get into this passage, this is how significant Abraham is. This is how significant this section of the Bible is to the bigger picture of God's story of redemption. And for Abraham, it all begins back in Genesis 12 when his name is still Abram. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abram to leave his country and go to the place where God would send him. So just flip back in your Bible a page or two to chapter 12 and take a look at verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that commitment from God reveals three things that God is promising to Abram. The first promise that he's making is the promise of land. Land, and this is really significant. Like these three things are really important for us to understand. Really, what happens through the rest of the Bible from this point forward? Okay, so the first commitment God makes to Abram is land. Chapter twelve, verse one. You can see it there. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God promises that He will take Abram to a new land, which would set God's people on a course to enter the promised land many, many years later. The second commitment God makes is to give him people. People. So Genesis 12, verse 2. God says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation. So God's promise won't just be for Abram and his family. This will extend to all of the people around him as well. Later in Genesis 17, when God reaffirms this covenant with Abram, God promises that Abram will have his own offspring. So, so when God's talking here, he's not just talking in general terms about a nation of people that will be there for Abram. He's talking in specific terms about a son that Abram will have. But then there's also a third commitment that God makes. The third commitment is blessing. So chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you need to see that God is saying two things here. His plan from the very beginning has been to bless all the nations through his people. And this extends to you and I sitting here this morning. God's heart has always been to set aside a people for himself who will then take the blessing that he's given us, take the message that he has entrusted to us, and multiply it to bless peoples of all races and all nationalities and all languages and all people groups across the corners of the globe. And then number two, God is saying to Abram that this promise is not just for Abram's family or for the people that God has placed directly around him, but that this promise will actually be an opportunity for everyone across every generation to hear from and respond to the God who makes this promise to this one man. 
So Genesis 12 is so important because it sets the stage for all that happens in the rest of the Bible. God is essentially inviting Abram to be used in a way that will bless all of humanity after him. Here's the problem. God is promising him land, people, and blessing beyond his wildest imagination. But look at how God plans to do this. So first, God promises to give land to Abram by telling him to leave the land where he already is and go to a place where he doesn't know he's going to end up. Second, God promises to give people or to give offspring to Abram, but at this point in his life, Abram is 75, Sarai, his wife, is 65, and she has not been able to have children. Third, God promises to give Abram blessing. And right after God makes these commitments to Abram, Abram and Sarai then walk right into a severe famine. Abram then lies to the Egyptians by saying that Sarai is his sister and not his wife because he's afraid that they're going to take Sarai and they're going to kill him. And then Abram rescues his nephew Lot from a coalition of pagan kings by defeating them in a battle that he never should have won. And, and we read that, and I don't think there's a single one of us sitting in the room right now who would fault Abram for stepping back and thinking to himself, even for just a minute, God, did I hear you right? Like, God, did I actually hear you say what I think you said? Like, did you actually make this promise to me? Because it feels right now like this whole train is like just moving in the wrong direction. We know what that's like, right? We thought God was leading us into a new job and we thought it was so clear but it's not going the way that we thought it would and, and we're wondering if we made a huge mistake. We thought our health condition had cleared up and everything was gone but now it's all back again and we're trying to figure out what God's doing in the midst of all of that. We thought God's leading for our family was so clear but now it's become so hard and we don't know how to deal with any of these things and we're still asking the same questions over and over and over again and we're wondering if it's too late now for us to turn back around. We thought God was making a way for us to go on this mission trip or to serve in this ministry or to impact our community in some kind of way, and we stepped out in faith and, and we gave sacrificially, but now we're facing so much opposition. We're wondering if we just made a really big mistake. I mean, we know what this is like, right? Come on, don't leave the pastor up here by himself, right? Like, like we know, right? We know what this is like. So we read this and we step back from it for a second and we think to ourselves, God, did I hear you right? That brings us to Genesis 15. So let's begin reading Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. And, and as we do, just, just ask the Lord, even as we read through his word right now, through Genesis 15, just ask him, Lord, teach us what we need to know. Teach us what we need to hear and what we need to see today. Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, 
Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we read that. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with each other, there's an element in here, in this passage, that we are all familiar with. We all have seasons of uncertainty. We all have times of trial. And if we thought about it long enough, we could all probably tell a story or two of how our faith wavered and we wondered if we were actually doing the right thing that God said that we should do. Where things have actually dragged on long enough to make us wonder if maybe we messed up somewhere along the way. And and so what I want you to see here as we make our way through this passage this morning is this. God is faithful to his promises even when I am fearful of my problems. God is faithful to his promises even when I am fearful of my problems. And so I want to show you here in this passage at least three pictures right here in Genesis 15 of what it looks like to have faith in the God of the impossible. Certainly not because I've got it all figured out and nailed down, definitely not, but instead I want you to see here that Abram really is in a situation where hope looks totally lost. Like he remembers a promise that God made to him, but so much time has passed and in regard to that specific promise, it looks like nothing has happened. So Abram's looking around and, and he's looking at himself and he's looking at his wife, Sarai, and he knows that the clock is ticking And it raises an important question for us. How can I trust God when things are not happening the way that I thought God said they would? How can I trust God when things are not happening in the way that I thought God said that they would? So three pictures of what it looks like to have faith in the God of the impossible. Let's start here. Number one, faith believes in the power of God even when it seems impossible. So keep in mind here what Abram has just been through. Uh, Verse 1 starts by saying, after these things. So there's not a lot of time, really, that's passed between the end of chapter 14 and the start of chapter 15. In chapter 14, a war breaks out between pagan kings, and in the process, Sodom and Gomorrah are overtaken. And Lot, who is Abram's nephew, is abducted in the getaway. So one of the soldiers then manages to escape, and he finds Abram to tell him about Lot, at which point Abram assembles his own army of 318 highly trained Hebrew Navy SEALs. He finds out where Lot is, they defeat this coalition army, and he rescues Lot. Now after that, the king of Sodom, whom Abram has just saved, comes to him, and with no gratitude whatsoever, he looks at Abram and asks Abram to give him back all of his people, and in return, Abram can take all of the possessions that he wants for himself. To which Abram then looks back to the king of Sodom and says, you know what? You can keep all your possessions. I don't want any of them. I am trusting in the Lord to give me what I need. 
Now, jot this down because this is really important. Faith does not find security in the provision. It finds security in the provider. Faith does not find security in the provision. It finds security in the provider. Now, we see this all the time, don't we? I mean, we have this sense of security within our lives because we have a roof over our heads and money in our pockets and food on our tables and clothes on our backs and and jobs to go to and families who love us and families that we love in return. And we are thankful for all of those good things that God has given us and we should be. But that's only the provision. It's only what God has given us. And faith does not find the security in the provision. It finds its security in the provider. I mean, think about this for a minute. What happens when your security is in the provision and then the job is lost? And then the money is gone. The close relationship is broken off. What happens when your security is in the provision and then the marriage breaks down or the health fails or the comfortable life disappears or that person disappoints you? I mean, we all know what happens, right? Because every single one of us in this room, me included, we all have the very same problem. Because at one time or another, with one thing or another, we have all pushed God out of his rightful place within our lives, and we've tried to fill that place with something else, or sometimes even worse yet, with someone else. And then when that object, or when that possession, or when that relationship that we have been worshiping all of that time suddenly gets knocked off its pedestal, we are devastated. Like, we are crushed. And we feel this profound emptiness within ourselves which begs us to ask the question of ourselves right now. Am I trusting in what God has provided? Or am I trusting in the God who will provide for all that I need? There's a huge difference there. I tried to put myself in Abram's sandals this past week. Maybe you can try and do the same right now. Can you imagine how hard it would have been for him to stand before the king of Sodom and the king of Sodom looks at him and says, you can take whatever you want. Just give me back my people. Take all the possessions that you want. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to be offered all of the material wealth, all of the worldly treasure, and then say, you know what? No thanks. Because I'm trusting that God is going to give me something greater than that. Because I'm trusting that God has a better plan in store for me than what you're able to offer me right now. One of the first places that my mind goes when I think about this is to all of the people in this room right now, all of the people in our other service, all the, all the kids who are growing up down those hallways right now, I just think to myself, all of the people who desperately want a certain relationship in your life because you think that relationship is going to give you something that you need. And I'm not just talking to young people right now. I'm not just talking to single people. I'm talking to married people. I'm talking to all of us right now because we all have this tendency at one time or another to do this with our friendships, to do this with our relationships. Some of you are maybe at a place where you've decided already that you're willing to cut corners in your relationship with God in order to have this relationship with someone else. You're okay compromising with something that you already have so that you can get something that you think you need. One of the other places my mind goes right away is to the way that we use our money. Maybe you decided a long time ago that the highest goal of your life was to make as much money as you possibly can because the nice house and the fancy car and the great vacation and the comfortable retirement, those are the most important things to you in this life. I remember a while ago talking with a good friend about how he came to know the Lord. 
And he said that after he was done high school and done college and he was through that season of his life, and this was before God had got a hold of him and changed his heart. He said after that season of life, he said the greatest aspiration of his entire life, the highest goal of his life was to get as rich as he could, as fast as he could, so that he could retire as soon as he could. And you know what it did to him? He said it ate him alive. His words, not mine. Can you read this and just step back long enough to ask yourself, do you see what happens when you put your security in the provision instead of the provider? Like it creates this overwhelming fear in our lives. Our lives become governed by this fear because eventually we realize that we don't have as much control over our life as we thought we did. Like, it brings us to the point of realizing eventually we don't have any control over our lives like we thought we did. And what's going to happen when it all spirals out of control and we're left with nothing? And so Abram now has just turned away all of this material wealth and all of this worldly treasure. He's declared his willingness to wait on God. And notice now what happens next in verse 1. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Like, just... Stop there. Like, isn't that amazing? Like, that's the grace of God. Abram goes through this, all of this, this, this war, and then this temptation, and, and right in the midst of that, God comes to him. So verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Like, read that verse and see the grace of God. Like in the face of what was likely a very real temptation, Abram makes the decision not to trust in the provision, but to trust in the provider. And the result is that God gave him the assurance that he has nothing to fear. Now, why? Now, why would God do that? Why would God tell him that in the midst of all of that? Why would God come to him and say, you have nothing to fear, Abram? Because what he's learning here is that the provider is also the protector. And so he comes to him and he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. In other words, Abram, I remember the promise that I made to you all those years ago. And I'm able to protect you just like it did against all those foreign kings in that battle. And I'm able to protect, the, I have the power to protect and preserve the promise that I made to you when I first came to you. But then Abram comes back to God in verse 2 and he says, God, I know I've got this promise from you, but I still don't have this child. All I have is this servant in my house, and he's going to be the next in line. And then verse 4 says that the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And Abram is at a point right now where this looks beyond impossible. Like just think about how significant this is for Abraham. Like in, in light of land, people, blessing, Genesis 12, all that God has promised to him, and, and then everything that he's been through up to this point, everything that he's still about to go through coming up, like, for example, the name Abram means father of many. The problem is that up to this point, Abram doesn't have a son to carry on his family line. So just imagine, like, people would come up to Abram, they'd be passing by, and they'd come up, and Abram would introduce himself and say, hey, I'm Abram, father of many. And, and they would look back at him and say, oh, wow, you must be so blessed. How many children do you have? Oh, I have none. Right? Like, father of many, father of none. So Genesis 16, Ishmael is born. Genesis 17, God reminds Abram again of his covenant promise by changing his name to Abraham, which now means father of many nations, which when you think about it, is hilarious. 
Because this man, whose only child is one that he has had with his wife's maidservant, is being promised by God that he will not only be the father of many, but he will now be the father of many nations. Furthermore, the child of the promise will not be Ishmael, it will be Isaac, who at the ripe young age of 99, Abraham still has not had. Like, all he has in this moment right now is a promise. That's it. And like we've said so many times before, the promise is only as good as the one who makes it, right? Promise is only as good as the one who makes it. For example, I could have come to your house this past Christmas and and come over to your house on Christmas Day and said to you and your family, my Christmas promise to you this year is that I will make you the best figgy pudding that you have ever had, which would be fantastic if I had any idea what figgy pudding even is. But I don't, and I don't really care. The promise is only as good as the one who makes it. So interestingly, Paul then writes later in the New Testament in Romans chapter 4, He writes in Romans 4 about what Abraham is going through right here in Genesis 15 and 17. And Paul says in Romans 4 that the one making the promise, so God, the one making the promise is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So Paul then goes on in that passage in Romans 4 to say that Abraham and Sarah were at a point in their life where they thought that they were as good as dead because they were so old. And in their oldness, they didn't have a child yet who would fulfill the promise that God was making. But what we see in Genesis 15 is that Abram's faith is in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not yet exist. Abram's faith is not in the provision. It's in the provider who can take what looks to be dead and make it come alive. The one who calls into existence generations of people who would come after him that did not yet exist at that time. I mean, think about this. Like, just stop long enough to think about your own salvation. Think about how this applies to us. Like, when God came to you, he did not come to you simply to solve your sin problem. He came to you to solve your death problem. Like, think about it. It's not like you were, like, kind of alive and and kind of a little bit dead, but not like you've got this little heartbeat that's fluttering and a little bit of movement and and you can do a few things on your own and then God comes along and he just makes it so much better. Like, no way, man, that's not what's going on. That's not the gospel. Like, you were dead. I was dead in my sins, but then he makes us alive in Jesus Christ. He gives life to what is dead by the word of his promise. Like faith in the God of the impossible. So think about this. What are the areas of your life that are causing you the greatest fear? And could it be that those are also the areas of your life where you are trusting the provision more than you are trusting the provider? And are you willing to take those areas of your life and surrender them to the one who comes to us and says, do not be anxious about your life because your provider knows exactly what you need. You don't need to be anxious about anything because the provider comes to you and to me and he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. See, faith believes in the power of God even when it seems impossible. But then notice this as well. Number two, faith believes in the promises of God even when it seems inconceivable. Faith believes in the promises of God even when it seems inconceivable. So this conversation here between God and Abram is fascinating because notice the twists that it takes along the way. So 
Verse 5, God takes Abram outside in the middle of the night and tells him to look toward heaven and says, all the people that will come from you will be as numerous as the stars in the sky that you are not able to fully count. And then verse 6, one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. So like underline it, highlight it, circle it, square it, whatever you need to do to make this stand out for you. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. They're all important, but this one like super important. Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So you got to understand that this is not just believing in something that you see that's happening right in front of you. Okay, instead, this is confidently looking ahead to something that is still to come. So it's not like you're saying, well, yeah, I can see that's happening right in front of me right now, and, and I believe it for sure. I can see it with my own eyes. It's not that. It's, it's like... I don't see anything right now. But I'm believing, God, that you're at work in this and you've got a plan in this and I don't know how it's going to come together and I don't know how it's going to end and I don't know what it's going to look like before I get there, but, but God, I know that you're at work. Abram's looking ahead and he's believing that God will come through on his promise. You know, sometimes we get to a passage like this and some people ask, well, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Like, How are they right in relationship with God. And, well, they're saved in the same way that you and I are saved today. They're saved by grace through faith. See, in grace, God comes to them just like he comes to Abram here. The difference is that people in the Old Testament looked forward and believed that God would be faithful to keep his promise to send a Savior and to secure our future. In the New Testament, and by extension for us today, we look backward. And we believe that God already has been faithful to his promise to do those very things, to send us a savior and to secure our future. And so here, as a result of Abram's confidently looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promise, Abram receives God's righteousness. In other words, Abram is shown favor by God, not on the basis of his own goodness or his own ability or all the good works he's done. He's shown favor because of God's grace coming to him and as a result of his faith. So verse 6, Abram believes the promise that God had made, but then look at verse 7. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So notice this now. In, in verse 6, Abram believes. But then in verse 8, he questions. So what happens there? Like what changed in between verse 6 and verse 8? See, when it comes to this matter of offspring, Abram's like, yes, Lord, I believe. And remember, that's one part of the promise from Genesis 12, right? But when it comes to this matter of land, which is also another part of the promise of Genesis 12, Abram's like, I don't know, Lord. Like, how can I be sure? So what's going on there? What's happened between verses 6 and verse 8? The difference is that Abram would have a son within his lifetime, his son is the one that he would be able to see. He would be able to hold him in his arms and watch him grow up. And that part made sense to Abram. But then on the other hand, when it came to the land that God was taking him to, Abram knew that he would die before he ever saw it. See, that's the difference. Both required faith from Abram, but one of those things he would see. And the other would require total trust that what God said was true. Think of it like this. God has promised heaven to those who believe in him through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you seen heaven yet? 
Do you know what the fullness of heaven will be like because you've experienced it already? Of course not. Despite what all the best-selling books try to tell us. I mean, even in, in spite of that, it doesn't change the reality that our hope is set toward heaven, right? Hope, not in the sense of, boy, I really hope this happens, like I am counting on this to happen. No, that's not it. It's more hope in the sense that I have no doubt that this is going to happen, and I'm just waiting for God to deliver on it. It's that kind of hope. See, what we need in the space between God has promised and God has provided is the conviction that God will. So what we need in that space between God has, provi- God has promised and then God has provided, what we need in between those two extremes is the conviction that God will do this. God will come through on what he has promised already. I mean, think about it. When it comes to us confidently looking ahead toward the promise of heaven, our entire life is lived right in the middle of that continuum. Right? God promised it. It's coming. I'm just waiting. Just waiting for God to take me. Like we know that God has promised. Sometimes we struggle with our faith. Sometimes we suffer for our faith. Sometimes we watch as people all over the world lose their lives for this faith. And sometimes we wonder if the God who made these promises is actually able to keep them. But don't forget to hold this passage in light of the rest of the story of the Bible. God comes to Abram. And he plucks him out of the middle of nowhere. And God made a promise to him that depended on nothing that Abram was able to give. It depended on everything that God gave to him. And God was faithful to him. As a believer in Jesus Christ, God came to us and he plucked us out of the middle of nowhere. And God made a promise that to us that depended not on anything we could give to him, but on everything that he has given to us. And God has been faithful and he will continue to be faithful to every single promise that he has made. And though we may struggle to wait for it, and though we suffer because of it, we put our hope in the God who said it. So see this here. Faith believes in the power of God even when it seems impossible. Faith believes in the promises of God even when it seems inconceivable. And then finally this, faith believes in the provision of God even when it seems incomprehensible. So Abram asks God for assurance in verse 8. God says to him in verse 9, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abram cuts them all in half except the birds. And he lays the halves opposite each other to form a pathway. So just think of like the outdoor weddings that you go to in the summer. And there's these two parallel rows of flowers that make like a center aisle. And then you wait for the bride and groom to, to appear and to walk down that aisle and commit their covenant love to one another. And for Abram, it's a little bit different. Like, instead of nice-looking flowers, he's using bloody animals that he's just sliced into. Not quite as romantic, but it'll have to do. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. In other places in the Bible, this kind of darkness often symbolizes the terror of God, especially the impact of God's holiness against our sin God reaffirms his promise to Abram, and then he says this in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now that there is what we call a theophany. A theophany. It's a, a, a manifestation of God in some form. So the firepot 
was symbolic of God's judgment against our sin. And that it was smoking signifies his wrath against sin. And the flaming torch was a sign of purifying. All of this perhaps symbolic of the purification that God brings by inviting his people into this covenant. See, in those days when a king made a covenant with his servants, the only ones to pass between the pieces of the animals was the servant because it was always assumed that the king would keep up his end of the deal. But whenever people passed through these pieces, it was a sign that the treaty was now in place, but it was also a sign that if one side did not keep the covenant, that they would end up just like the animal pieces that they were now passing between. So we read this in verse 17, and God is making this covenant with Abram, and God is passing between the pieces, but who is not passing between the pieces? Abram. God is walking by himself through these pieces, down this pathway. Abram is not. So the message here is really clear. God is not only taking responsibility for his side of the covenant, he is also taking responsibility for Abram's side of the covenant as well. God is saying that if he does not keep up his end of the covenant, then he will bear the penalty for that. But he's also saying that if Abram does not keep up his end of the covenant, that God will bear the penalty for that as well. No doubt, this is one of the clearest pictures of Jesus in all of the Old Testament. Like God comes to us not simply in the form of a theophany, but in the person of Jesus Christ who took the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch of God's wrath and judgment against our sins. And when that happened, darkness falls over the whole land as our sin is confronted by the holiness of God. But just as God alone passed between the pieces of animals whose blood had been shed, so did God alone in the person of Jesus Christ go to the cross where his blood was shed, where he took not only our sins upon himself, but he took the responsibility for our sins upon himself so that we could enter into this covenant relationship with this loving God. And just like Abram was guaranteed land and people and blessing, we too have the guarantee of a land to possess. Like Think about this, not just in terms of a geographical location of all of the ites in verses 19 to 21, but we have the hope of an ultimate promised land in heaven. So we're not looking ahead to the land of the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Amorites or the Canaanites or the Girgashites or whateverites. We are heavenites, baby. That's where we're going. That's the land that's been reserved for us. That's heaven. That's the land that God has set aside and he has made space for for us. That's where we get to go. Not only that, but we will be in this promised land with all of the people that Jesus has brought in through this covenant, all of the children of God, think about it, who are more numerous than all of the stars in the sky. And if that's not enough, because God has made this covenant with us through Jesus Christ, we now have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus as our own. So, get this, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. 
God covenants with Abraham to give him geographical land with physical people and God's blessing upon him. And now for you and I in Jesus Christ, we await a land. We are part of a people and we have every blessing, all of it in Jesus Christ. But just like Abraham, the only way that this becomes ours is through faith in the promise that God has already fulfilled by sending his only son to save us and secure our future for us. It is through faith in the God of the impossible that you are saved. And you have the righteousness of God. And because all of this is true. Can we really sit here and say that this demands anything less than that we give the fullness of our lives to the one who gave everything that he had for us? To think that there are thousands of people in our city, millions of people beyond, and billions of people all across the nations who need to hear that there is a God of love who has written this story of redemption from the beginning of time and that he is inviting us, he is using us to reach out to all of these people so that they too can experience this blessing forever. I mean, do not lose sight of this. Because this thread here was never meant to stop with Abraham thousands of years ago, and it's certainly not meant to stop with you and me today. It is time for us to respond when he calls, to do what he says, to go where he sends. It is time for us to worship him with all of our lives because of the God of the impossible has provided for us. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know of any better way to end this service and by hearing more people step into that baptism tank. Three this morning that, man, you guys missed out in the first service, but it's going to be great here in this service too, I promise. And it was just so outstanding. And I just don't know of any better way than to hear more people get into this tank and testify of the very reality of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, then we're going to sing, and then we're going to baptize, and then we're going to celebrate our faces off, and then we're going to sing some more, and then we're probably going to pray some more, and then in faith, we are going to take this glorious good news of the gospel to whatever place God takes us to this week. Amen? Amen. 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 We have an awesome God.